and strap on your seatbelts. And if you uh, don't have a Bible and you want to follow along with us tonight, uh, just lift up your hand and uh, Stu's making his way right up the middle aisle. He'll bring a Bible to you so you can follow along with us in our study. Again, Romans chapter 9. And um, I have to give you three precursors to this Bible study. Uh, First of all, if this is your first time here on a Wednesday night, I'm going to pre-apologize. Because we have been studying the book of Romans verse by verse from chapter 1 all the way... Someone just got up and left. They're like, all right. (laughs) We've been studying verse by verse. And and, and if you've missed the last eight chapters, and this is your first time here, then not one word of what I'm going to say tonight is going to make any sense to you at all. So I'm just apologizing ahead of time. Now, now of course, I'm, I'm half tongue-in-cheek with that because, you know, God's Word is living and powerful and it doesn't return void. So He'll bless it, but uh, um, I'm just preparing you ahead of time. Second thing, um, before we even get into this, is that it is wise for every Christian person to have a file somewhere in their mind that is labeled, Wait for More Information. And in that file, you tuck everything that you hear in the Bible that you cannot reconcile in your logical sense. Because there are things that the Bible teaches that you cannot reconcile in your logical sense. So if you do not have a file in your mind that says, wait for more information, then there are some things I'm going to say tonight that you're going to have to put in that file. So create one now. (laughs) And uh, finally, last thing, and this is just to kind of excuse myself a little bit, is that at the conclusion of this passage, of this section of Scripture that we're going to look at tonight, Paul, the author of this, himself, said, I don't get this. And that makes it really hard for me to make it clear. You know, uh, one thing I heard one time, you know, in my never-ending pursuit to get better at what I'm doing right now, one thing I heard one time is that if it's a mist in your mind, it'll be a fog in the pew. And Paul here is saying, this is a mist in my mind. And so he's writing it. So uh, I'm going to do my best with this. But this is an extremely challenging portion of Scripture. Um, But yet, nevertheless, God didn't leave it out. It's not without purpose. And it's not without power to do in our lives what God has sent it forth to do. So I hope you're excited at this point as we begin uh, going through three chapters of Scripture tonight. Um, Actually, I'll be honest, we're only probably going to get through two. But... uh, See how it goes. So Romans chapter 9. Now the Apostle Paul has spent the last eight chapters that we have looked through and studied in our, in our Wednesday nights here together, defining and explaining for us the gospel. What exactly is the gospel? And he starts off by telling us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that therefore we all, every human being to ever live, has need of a Savior. Somebody to do something for us that we can't do ourselves. Nobody can save themselves from their sins. And then he goes on to explain to us that God has provided that Savior. A substitution who took our place in judgment and who offers to give His life to any who place their faith in Him. So Jesus, the Son of God, became a man lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, and then took the punishment that our sin bought, and then in exchange he offers the life that he earned. Do you understand? That's the gospel. It's the good news that God has provided a Savior. 
that God's made a way for us to be saved apart from our own effort, apart from our own ability, our own uh, will, if you would, or our merit. But simply by coming to Jesus Christ and putting our faith in what He did for us, we can be saved. Then Paul goes on to explain in chapters 6, 7, and 8 that God, after we've come to Him, is now working in our lives, changing us. He's cleaning us out. He's preparing us for future blessing and future service of His and future inheritance. That He's blessing us. And it's a process that the Bible calls sanctification. It's after we come to Christ that God now works in our lives to bring out of us what He has placed in us. And that is the righteousness of His Spirit. And then, in chapter 8, He concludes it by giving to us and and laying out for us what is our privileged position as children of God. That there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Our sin has been put away, past, present, and future. We're completely forgiven and free from the curse of the law. No condemnation. And then He tells us that there's no separation. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's no situation, no circumstance, nothing at all that can separate us from this great love that we've received by coming to Jesus Christ. And, he tells us, that while we're en route to glory, all things, no matter how dark they might seem, no matter how dismal the circumstances are, all things are working together for good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. That is the gospel. And Paul lays it out for us in its totality in chapters 1 through 8 of the book of Romans. Now, the, the obvious conclusion to all of that is it's a good deal. And who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to come to God and be brought into this relationship with Him, have your sins washed away, be given the promise of eternal life, and the guarantee that along the way all things are working together for good? Who wouldn't want that? And as we get now into chapters 9, 10, and 11, it would seem that the Apostle Paul is veering off of his initial project, if you would. He's kind of turning aside from what he initially set forth to do and just explain the gospel. And he gets into these three chapters that concern the nation of Israel. And it would almost seem like he's getting a little bit of preacher's disease. You know, going off on a tangent that doesn't really fit with the flow of what he's been talking about beforehand. You guys know what that's like for the preacher's disease, you know, those long tangents. It reminds me of that, uh, you know, the, the two women that were sitting in the salon and they were both from different churches and they began talking about their pastors. And the one woman was sitting there and she said to the other one, she said, you know, our pastor is so great, he can speak for an hour on any topic. And the other woman fired back as she was sitting in her seat and she said, I go to a Calvary Chapel and my pastor is so great, he could talk for an hour without a topic. You know, <laughs> and that can happen sometimes, you know, is, you know, the preacher's disease, you know, just kind of veering off. It made sense when I started saying this, but now I don't know where I am. And it would almost seem that that's happening to Paul a little bit, but I don't think it is. The Apostle Paul was a brilliant man, led by the Spirit of God. 
and he's very calculated in what he would say. And we know that God's word is very calculated, that it's all very systematically laid out for us. So it isn't veering off, even though it seems like it's irrelatable. God's got a purpose and a relation between what we're going to hear tonight and what he has already said. Now we know from studying the book of Acts and being somewhat acquainted with the great apostle Paul, that his primary passion in salvation was to see the Jews get saved. He wanted so bad to be called to reach Israel. And yet, it wasn't God's will for him to do that. God called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he was constantly kind of at odds with God's will in that respect. He wanted to go to the Jews, but yet God kept sending him to the Gentiles. And we see this, this conflict always surrounding him in his goings, and here it comes out in his writings. Because he devotes these three chapters that we have right in front of us to discussing Israel's salvation, first of all, and also Israel's role in God's plan to reach the rest of the world with salvation. So even though he's the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's writing the book of Romans to the church of the Gentiles, he can't do it without also including these three chapters where he discusses the salvation of Israel and his great desire to see them saved and, and, and all the rest. Now Paul's point in these three chapters is singular. He has one point that he's seeking to make over and above all the rest. And that is, he wants to see Israel, or the Jews, saved. That's what he wants. And that's what he's talking about in these things. He wants them to experience salvation through Jesus Christ. That becomes very evident in the first three verses of chapter 9. He writes and he says, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Isn't it interesting that he just finished talking about the grandness of the depths of the love of God? Breadth or height, depth, things present, things to come, nothing can separate us from the love of God. But then in the next breath, he says, at the same time, I also have a continual heaviness and a sorrow in my heart. Why? Verse 3. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now the weight of Paul's statement here is huge. What's Paul saying? He's saying, and, and I want you to really let this sink in. He's saying, if I was given the choice wherein I would go to hell, I would be accursed, cut off from Jesus Christ, so that they could know Christ and be saved, I would take the deal. Now that is radical. <laughs> I mean, that is real, pure love. It's burden for someone's salvation in the purest sense to be able to stand in the gap in such a way as to say, Father, throw me into the pit and spare them. Now, I cannot say that I have anyone in my life, you know, yet, at least, that, 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 I, that I could honestly, you know, say, okay, well, I would endure the burning torments of eternal hell in place of their salvation. But yet, Paul could say that, hey, this is the absolute truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience is bearing witness. The spirit within me is, is agreeing with me on this. There's nothing deceptive about what I'm saying. I would take the deal. It's very clear 
that Paul was passionate about the salvation of the Jews. He makes that clear that he's identifying Israel in verses 4 and 5. He says, My kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. There's no doubt at all who Paul is talking about. He's talking about the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, the promised seed, through whom Christ was brought into the world. He wants to see Israel saved. Now, have you ever wanted something really bad? You know, maybe not the salvation of Israel, but can you think of something at some point in your life that you wanted really bad? It it could even be something selfish. You know, a possession, a place, a house, some land, a car, you know, a toy, something that you just wanted. And, and, And when that happens, it's all you can think about. You're constantly musing and going over in your mind, how can I get this thing that I want? How can I work it out? How could it happen? If it's out of your control, you daydream and fantasize about how circumstances and situations could work themselves together so that you could get this thing that you want. And you find, in many instances, that when you want something that bad, it's all-consuming. It takes over you. you just It's all you can think about. Now, for Paul, he wants that thing that is overtaking him in his desire is the salvation of the Jews. It's all he's thinking about. It's always in his mind. Even when he's writing and preaching about the never-failing love of Christ, at the same time, he has continual heaviness and sorrow in his heart because he wants to see the salvation of Israel. It's always there in his mind. And therefore, he's always thinking about, how can I make that happen? How can I bring this forth? How can I see this thing come to pass? that I so desire with all my heart, the salvation of the Jews. And the byproduct of thinking that way because of the desire is that you begin to think, well, wait a minute, what, what is it that it's going to take? Why can't they see what I see? Why can't they understand what I've come to understand about Jesus and about how he's revealed through the Old Testament scriptures and how he's their savior. How can they not understand it? What is it going to take for them to get saved? In fact, what does it take for anyone to get saved? What does it take? Do you remember when you first got saved? When the lights were first turned on? When your heart was filled with the testimony of God's spirit within you that he was true and that the Bible was true? The lights were on. You came to church, and for the first time in your life, you liked it. You walked in the door thinking, oh, this is something I have to do. And you left feeling like, I can't wait to come back next week. Because something happened, something took place within your heart and within your life. The Bible, the scriptures that were once weird and shady and fuzzy and incomprehensible, now they make sense. You can't wait to learn more. There's a hunger that's birthed inside of you and you get excited about the things of the Lord. Do you remember what that was like? And part of that was this feeling that I remember having and and still from time to time get of looking at someone on the outside and thinking, how can they not see this? 
How can they not see how clearly God is real and His word is true and how the Bible all fits together with itself? How could this person that I know that goes to church or goes to synagogue week after week and for their whole life and yet they don't see the reality of Christ? How can they not see it? I don't understand. And you bring them to church and you're excited because they're going to get it. I mean, they're going to hear the Bible taught. They're going to get it. They're going to feel the same joy that I feel. This is going to be great. And so you bring them to church. But as the message gets hot and passionate, you look over and they've fallen asleep and gone cold. You know, they're texting while you're writing notes, you know, and you just can't understand. It doesn't make sense. It's so clear to you. So why is it so cloudy to them? What does it take for somebody to get saved? What's really going on? You ever wonder that? Paul did. Why can't they see it? Why won't they understand? What keeps them from coming to Christ? And the same thing for you and I with the people that we love, the people that we're linked to. We just can't understand. They know they have a need. We know they have a need. We know that they would be completed and satisfied, but why don't they come? What keeps someone from coming to Christ? Well, as Paul considers this question as it relates to his burden, he answers questions that we might have concerning ours. What is it that keeps someone from coming to Christ? What factors are involved in somebody's salvation? He begins to answer these questions as he moves through his discussion about Israel. The first thing that he points out, that he draws out concerning his burden for Israel and perhaps our burden for someone else, is that we understand that salvation is a personal experience. It happens a person at a time, and that it's not a family inheritance. The Apostle Paul, after he tells us who Israel is in the first five verses, he says this in verse 6. He says, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. In other words, just because they bear the name Israelite doesn't really make them Israel. Israel means, for you Bible students, the definition of the word is governed by God. And Paul is saying just because they are Israelites by blood does not mean that they are governed by God spiritually. Neither, verse 7, because they are of the seed of Abraham, are they all children, meaning children of God. But, he says, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, descendants of Abraham by blood, that can prove that they are the seed of Abraham. He says, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Just because they are born into the family of Abraham does not make them Israelites or those that are governed by God. But it's something that happens as each person individually responds to God in his promise and believes on him through faith. Many people believe that if they, their parents are Christian, then that automatically makes them Christian by default. There are also many people that believe that since they live in the United States of America and hold citizenship here, that by default, that also makes them Christian. Because, hey, this is a Christian nation by definition, at least right now. And so, therefore, I am a Christian because I live in the United States of America. But that's not the way it works. God doesn't have any grandchildren. 
There's nobody that will be in heaven simply because their parents were saved, or maybe even many generations of their parents and grandparents were saved. But rather, each person that will be in heaven will be there because they had a personal encounter with the true and living God, where they came to Him on the terms of faith and received Christ as the atonement for their sacrifice or for their sins. And every single person that comes to God must come through Jesus Christ. You cannot come through your parents. You can't come through your church or your Sunday school or by any other association. But rather, you and God must transact together. And there must be an exchange of your sin for His righteousness. And then you are saved by grace, by God's gift that He extends to you. And it happens each person individually. So just by the fact that they were the seed of Abraham, And they were given these grand promises of a Messiah that didn't automatically guarantee them salvation. They had to also, like Abraham, believe God through faith and come to Him on those terms. So salvation is something that happens one person at a time. It must become yours. Parents, for your kids, it must become theirs. There has to be a time in their life when Jesus Christ translates from something that is the rule of your household to the rule of their heart, individually, personally. And that can only happen by the miraculous work of God reaching out and grabbing a hold of their life and getting their attention and them receiving Him by faith. You can have no control or power over that. You can steer them in the right direction. You can point them in the way they should go. You can sow the powerful seed of the Word of God within their hearts. But they must experience God personally because salvation is personal, not familial. You understand? So it happens one person at a time. That's what Paul brings out. He talks about this promised seed in verse 9. He says, for this is the word of promise, that at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. Now notice that all three of those factors have to do with God. He says, at this time, the time that I've appointed, will I come, meaning God is going to get involved and do something, And then Sarah shall have a son. He's going to do something impossible. If you know the story, she was 90 years old. That's impossible. So in God's timing, by God's power, through the miraculous work of God, a promise was given and a promise was received. It wasn't the work of Abraham's flesh through Hagar. It wasn't by the rule of descendant law that these are my seed and therefore they are heirs of my promise. But rather it's a work of God. It happens one person at a time. The second thing that Paul brings up for us is that salvation, whether it's to the Jews, as he desired, whether it's for those people that you're concerned about or for you yourself, the second thing about salvation is that salvation is by election, by the, by the sovereign election of God. Look at verse 10. He says, and not only this, not only is it personal, But when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not by works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her that the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Paul brings up a very interesting point here. He says to us that God spoke to Isaac and Rebekah, 
who were the promise. That's what it was. Isaac was the promised descendant of Abraham. And then, you know, it would go from Isaac downward. And before Rebekah even gave birth to those two boys, God had already made his decision. Before one day of their life was lived, before they had any chance to do good or to do evil or to make any choices whatsoever, God, through his sovereign power and his perfect purpose, had already chosen Jacob to be the one that would be the heir and not Esau, saying, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, before any of that had happened. And Paul tells us that this points us to the fact that God's calling and his salvation is in part, by election. That it's what he chooses to do. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, says, For whom he, God, did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his Son. That means that their destiny to be conformed into the image of his Son was predetermined. Before they were even born, it was determined by God that they would come to know him personally. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 says this, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. He says that before the foundation of the world, before the first day of spoken creation even happened, God already knew that you and I, if you are in fact in Christ, He already had chosen you by predestination. He had predetermined your destiny. He saw ahead of time your salvation before you were even born. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Speaking, this is speaking of the Antichrist. It's not talking about you. It says, Whose names are not written in the book of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That the Lamb's book of life, with the names of those that would be saved, was already written, already sealed before the first day of creation was ever lived. All of those names were written there before the foundation of the world. Revelation chapter 17, verse 8, uses a very similar uh, phrase and says it this way. It says that the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. He says, he implies that the names that are in the book of life were written there from the foundation of the world. Paul is saying to us here, the scriptures back up and buttress the point, that before they were even born, before they did any good or evil, God had already chosen by election those that would be saved. Now, Paul knew that his audience would be thinking at this point, as perhaps you might be thinking here, wait a minute, that's, that's a little bit, I mean, that's, that's crazy, you're thinking. You're thinking, wait a minute, that's almost maybe not right. That's not fair. Before, I mean, I have a will. I mean, I have free... And and all of a sudden, your mind begins to spin now because something is seeming a little irreconcilable about your experience versus what you're hearing now. And, and, And you can almost... Well, Paul knew that that would be taking place in the minds of his audience. 
So Paul further explains what he's talking about in verses 14 through 24 as we read on. He asks two rhetorical questions and then he answers them. He says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Because we might be thinking, well, that's not right. Something is unjust in this equation here. It's not computing. Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith, now he gives the answer to his rhetorical question, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. That God is sovereign in election. Now, when God said that to Moses was when he declared before him his name. Moses asked for his name. He said, show me your glory. And God said, as he hid him in the cleft of the rock, he said, I'm going to pass by you. The tail end of my glory is going to pass by and I'm going to declare the name of the Lord. And he declared his name. He said, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. And then he said, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion. And what Paul is bringing out here is that, listen, this is who God says he is. God is saying in his very name, in his very nature, that he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. That that's his choice because he is God. That's who he is. That's what Paul is declaring. He is sovereign. Then he says in verse 17, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh... He's still answering the first question. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Now we know that Pharaoh's end was destructive. Pharaoh fell. Therefore, verse 18, Paul concludes, he says, He hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardens. That's God. He's God. Well, verse 19, thou wilt say unto me then, well, why doth he yet then find fault? For who has resisted his will? Well, how can God find fault with me then if it's already predetermined if that's the way that it works? How does that work, Paul? Is there, you know, are there next question? Who has resisted his will? And Paul answers this question. You're almost waiting for it, aren't you? Where Paul's going to be like, don't worry, it's all good. He doesn't do that. He lets them have it in its fullest. Look at verse 20. He says, Nay, but, O man, who are you that replies against God? Who are you that's going to speak against God in his way? Shall the thing formed, that's you, say to him that formed it, that's God, why have you made me thus? Are you going to argue with God? Can you fight against God and win? Can you change who God is? Paul's two questions, the first one is, who is God? God says, this is who I am. And then the second one, he says, who are you? You are the creation of God. Hath not the potter, that's God, power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? He says, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. He, he says, who are you, and who are you that you can fight against God and his will, or who are you to think that you can build a case against God? 
He says, this is the fact of the matter, that salvation is by election. But he says, but rather now, as he concludes this in verses 22, 23, and 24, he says, make sure you, Christian, as you are listening, that you have the proper perspective. What is the perspective that we are to take in relation to these things? Again, verse 22, what if God, willing to show his wrath, that means to reveal that quality of who he is, and to make his power known to you and I, he endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had before prepared unto glory. Now listen, verse 24, even us. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Paul takes the position, and he makes the assumption, that if you're reading this, if you're hearing these words right now that I'm reading and speaking to you, and if you're comprehending them, that if you fall into that camp, you have understanding, then you are probably called. That you are probably amongst those that are called, not a vessel of wrath, not written in the book of life, but rather someone who is called, someone who's chosen, that from the foundation of the world, God foreknew your day of salvation. Now in verses 25 through 29, he quotes two prophets through which he does two things. He shows that both the failure of Israel to receive salvation and the salvation of the Gentiles were both foreknown and predetermined by God. Verse 25. Don't worry, we're, not, we're going to come back to this issue. I'm not skirting it. As he saith also in Hosea, he says, I will call them my people which were not my people. That's you and I, the Gentiles. And her beloved, that's you and I, which was not beloved, the Gentiles. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, that's you and I, there shall they be called the children of the living God. That's you and I. We've been brought in. We weren't Jews. We weren't the seed of Abraham. But yet we have been saved. God has revealed himself to us and we're called of him. Verse 27. Isaiah also cries concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Only a small portion. For he will finish the work... And cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom, and been made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, that's you and I, which followed not after righteousness, meaning that we were not the seed of Abraham, neither could we be, nor did we care about the things of God, Yet we have attained unto righteousness. We've gotten it. We've achieved it. We've gained this status, this position of being called the children of God. Even the righteousness that comes by faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, seeking to justify themselves, seeking to work their way into God's favor, to be good enough, to do enough, he says, they have not attained unto it. Why? Verse 32. Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. They didn't make it because they tried to make it on their own. 
But we have been saved because we have come to Christ. We've believed in him. We've trusted in the Savior who died for our sins and did something that we couldn't do ourselves. He says of the stumbling stone in verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Now, Paul says that the failure of Israel to enter into the salvation... And the ability or the salvation of the Gentiles, that's you and I, that both of those things were foreknown and predetermined by Almighty God. And his point that he's making very clearly and without apologizing for it is that the salvation of God is by election and by predestination. Now listen. That is absolutely true, what I just told you. I did nothing but just read scripture to you. However, it is not the only factor involved in salvation. It isn't the only factor. Now, some have tried to make it that. Some have tried to say, well, salvation is by election, by predestination, and that's the end of the story. There's a period at the end of the sentence. And the result of taking that kind of a stance and not taking the whole of what the Bible teaches is a very unbalanced theology and a Christianity that goes into a tailspin. It becomes unproductive, it becomes unfruitful, and it becomes very uncharacteristic of Christ. Because although election is a factor in how salvation works, it is not the end of the story, not the end of the situation. Paul goes on now, as we get into chapter 10, to talk about the next factor that is played into somebody getting saved. And that is decision. Decision. The choice that we make having free will. Do you know that you and I are free moral agents? That God does not have a light switch inside of you and he does not govern and make you think or act or behave or profess a certain way. That you have absolute free sovereign will over your own life to choose however you want. Did you know that if you don't choose Christ of your own free will that you cannot be saved? So although election is 100% true concerning salvation and the names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So also is your decision. Are you confused yet? Because I am. (laughs) And yet, decision is a factor in the things of salvation. Now, election is salvation concealed. Because God in His sovereignty, in His foreknowledge, in His possession of the Book of Life, knows the name of every man, woman, and child that will be saved. So election is salvation concealed. But decision is salvation revealed. Because at the point of decision, then it becomes revealed where the name is written. This comes out now as Paul begins to draw this contrast between the Jews and the Gentiles. And as we cross into chapter 10, he discusses the problem that Israel has. Look with me, verse 10, chapter chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Brethren... My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now that's the second time we've seen this in Paul. We know that this is what's on his mind. He wants Israel to be saved. He wants to see them saved. The same way perhaps you have people in your life that you want to see saved. You want to see them come to Christ. He says, for I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Do you know people like that? Man, they are faithful. They go to church every Sunday. 
Man, they serve in the Sunday school. They're involved in their church. They're on the committees. They're participating in the programs. And yet you know, and they know, that they don't really know God. The testimony of what their life exhibits during the week is clear to be seen, that they don't really know God. They have a zeal for God. They have a passion for religious activity, but they don't know God. They haven't entered into that place where they've embraced and and been lit up with truth. Why? Verse 3, For they, those that have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now Paul, again, he draws on everything that he's already said in the first eight chapters. That there are two paths that people seek to try to make it to heaven. Their own way and God's way. Their own way is keeping the law, being good enough, achieving it, meriting it in some way, the favor of God. He's got to accept me because I have upheld my righteousness. And Paul's very clear that you can have all the zeal for your righteous acts that you want, but you will never get to God on your own. The other path? Through faith in Jesus Christ. God's righteousness. The righteousness that He has purchased, that He has provided, that He is freely offering and saying to you that you can receive it. I've paid the price in full. Look at the wounds in my hands and my feet. See my shed blood. I've paid, I've purchased your salvation and it's full. And here, submit to it. But there's a word in that verse. As Paul contrasts these two paths, their own righteousness versus God's righteousness, there's a word in there that implies decision. It's the word submitted. He says that they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That is a word that implies decision. Because we must make a conscious decision that we are going to submit ourselves to the righteousness of God, that we will humble ourselves and say, I can't do it on my own, I'm turning to you. And it's a decision that I am consciously making in the, the, the power of my free will in my mind and in my heart to turn myself to the righteousness that God has, has laid out before me, the decision that I'm making to do this. There's a decision that needs to be made personally that seals that engages, that enacts the salvation that God has granted predestinatively. Do you understand? It's been written. It's been drawn up. God has called you. He he knows you. He foreknows that you're going to make the right choice. He sees through the lens of eternity. And then He lays it out. And when you make that decision, the salvation is sealed. It's engaged. It's enacted. That salvation that was previously concealed and known only to God, through your decision, it is now revealed That you are saved. Now what is that decision? What is the decision that I'm called to make? What choice am I making? He tells us in verses 4 and onward. He says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. In other words, the law cannot save you. And when you realize that and you come to Christ, then the path of trying to keep the law and earn God's favor, it ends. It's over because you've believed in Christ. For Moses describes the righteousness which is by the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. That if you want to be righteous according to the law, then you better keep it perfectly. You better be good. 
Because if you sin, if you stumble, if you break God's law at even one point, you're toast. You cannot sin, not even once. Because as soon as you sin, it's over with. That's the righteousness that comes by the law. Is there anybody in here that has never sinned? You have never, ever sinned? Show of hands. Really? No one? I thought there'd be at least one. Oh, Brett. Okay. I was getting scared that lightning was going to strike or something, but at least you're here. (laughs) No, we've all sinned. The man that doeth these things shall live by them. But, verse 6, the righteousness which is by faith. Now notice he's laying out for you a choice. You can choose one or the other. Your own salvation, your own righteousness, or the righteousness that God gives and grants. The righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. He's just quoting scripture that implies my own efforts. But what saith it? It says that the word is nigh thee, near you. Even in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. Now this is the decision. The decision that every saved person has made and will make. Personally, practically, and powerfully. That if you, verse 9, not God did this already, but if you, you are the one making this decision, that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, literally that Jesus is the Lord of your life, and that you believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. Now, that's very complicated, isn't it? 45 spiritual laws, 613 spiritual ordinances, promised cards and sealed covenants of church attendance records and tithing offerings. and all. No, listen. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, accepting him as your Lord, and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The heart, something happens, I believe, I'm making a choice, I'm accepting that what the Bible says is true. And then with my mouth I'm making a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. That God did, in fact, raise him from the dead. And that God is going to raise me from the dead. I'm taking his promise at his word. I'm applying it to my life. And God says that that is my salvation. For the scripture saith, verse 11, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Your two choices, justification by the law, your works and efforts, or justification by faith, submitting yourself to receiving what Jesus Christ did on your behalf. You are making the choice. Well, wait a minute. You say, well, wait a minute. Who gets saved? Those that are elected and predestined? To get saved? Or whosoever chooses to and believes? The answer is both. That when you decide 
in your heart and in your mind to profess Christ as your Lord, then it is revealed that you were elected. So both things are true. Thus, everyone's a candidate. That's why in verse 11, it says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, in verse 12, it says that the same Lord is rich over all that call upon Him, because it's available to everyone. And then in verse 13 again, He says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's open and available to any that would hear and choose to follow Christ as their righteousness. And therefore... Because it isn't election and predestination alone, but it is also decision. Therefore, Paul says in verse 14, we preach. We preach. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. We preach, we share, we try, we seek to compel those we love. For Paul, it would be the Israelites. For you and I, the people around us, that we see hurting, suffering, lost in their sins. That there's a way that God has made for them to be saved, that they can be brought to Him. Because whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But Paul says, have they not all obeyed, or but they have not all obeyed the gospel? For Isaiah says, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That this powerful word, that as you preach it to others, and as you yourself take it in, it has the power to produce faith within your life. Saving faith. The kind of faith that Paul is speaking of here as he talks about our salvation. But concerning the Jews, again, in verse 18, he says, I say, have they not heard? Yes, truly. Their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the end of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? (laughs) Can you hear Paul's intellect? How can they not know? How can they not see? I mean, you know, think about this. The Jews knew the scriptures. They studied them every Sabbath. And yet they couldn't see Jesus? How could they not know? How could they not see First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold, and saith, I was found of them that sought me not, and I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. That's us, the Gentiles. But to Israel, he saith, all day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. They wouldn't receive him. He came unto his own, John says, but his own received him not. But yet still, for all of that, God says, I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. Now next week, as we get into chapter 11, we're going to talk, in light of these things, about the role of Israel in God's plan for salvation. Because we already learned and discussed tonight that God foreknew and pre-planned that Israel would fall, reject him if you would. It was already settled there that that would happen. So that means God must have a plan. Because everything He does, He does for a reason. And the fall of Israel, or the failure of Israel to attain the salvation, is serving a greater purpose in God's plan that Paul discusses in chapter 11. But, for us, in conclusion now, to the things that we have seen and heard in chapters 9 and 10, 
in conclusion to what you've heard tonight, to the best of my ability, there are basically four factors that make up a person's salvation. That make up yours and my decision, that would make up the Jews to Paul's day, or anybody else that gets saved. There are four factors that Paul is bringing to our attention. Number one is election. Number two is decision. Number three is foreknowledge. And number four is free will. Now, two of those things work on God's end. They are foreknowledge and election. God is all-knowing. There is nothing that God doesn't know. There, there is no question you could ask Him that the answer will ever be, I don't know. Even about things that haven't happened yet, and even about things that are determined by our own free will. He already knows everything because He's omniscient. So therefore, because He knows everything, He is able to work according to election. He very simply chooses those who would choose Him. He picks winners every time. That's just the way He works. So free will and elect, I mean, I'm sorry, foreknowledge and election work together. Two of those factors. The other two factors are free will and decision. And those two factors work exclusively on our end. We are free moral agents, able to make the decision on our own whether or not we're going to yield to the righteousness of God or try ourselves to do our best to get to heaven. We have free will and a decision to make. But though there are four factors, two on God's end and two on ours, all four of them work together to bring someone to the place of salvation. You cannot exclude any of them. They all are active. If they weren't, if salvation were 100% election of God without any involvement of us at all, our will, our decision, or anything, then there would be no need for Paul to write chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Remember way back at the beginning when he said, I would wish myself to go to hell so that they could be saved? He wouldn't write that. Because in his mind, he would just know, well, God's, God's got it all mapped out already, and so my involvement plays no part, so there's no need for me to feel that way. Chapter 10, verse 1, would be an error. Does the Bible contain errors? No. The Word of God is perfect. All Scripture given by inspiration of Him. But chapter 10, verse 1 says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Why would Paul pray to God for something that God has not elected? To pray for someone's salvation would be sin because you're not praying according to the will of God. If it were 100% election, there would be no need or place for prayer in someone's salvation. But yet we know as Christians that there absolutely is. That prayer changes things. Prayer plays a part. Chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 would be a lie. Because... Well, it says, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord... That would be a lie. Because that would mean that someone could call upon the name of the Lord that was not elected. Someone could accidentally cry out for God's salvation. But yet, whoops, their name wasn't written there in the book of life. That's a, a wrench in the system. It would be a lie. And we know that there is no lie that is of the truth. So therefore, there's more involved than just simply the election. Verses 14 and 15 wouldn't exist because there would be no need for preachers. It would already be predetermined by God, everybody that's going to get saved, so then why should I go share with anybody? God already has it all in control. But yet the Bible is very clear that we are to preach. 
Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Do the work of the evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. Paul says, Therefore we preach to the Corinthians, persuading men, because we know the goodness and the severity of God. So, the very fact that we are called to preach means that there's more involved than just simply election and nothing else. And verse, or chapter 10, verse 21, would make no sense at all if it were just election. Because look again, chapter 10, verse 21, he says, But to Israel he saith, God, speaking to Israel, All day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. That God himself is in the heavens pleading with them, Come to me, choose me, yield yourselves to my righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 1, God reasons with the people of Israel. He grabs them by the shirt collar, if you would, and He says, Come, let us reason together. It's reasonable. Though your sins are as scarlet, I will wash them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I'll make them white like wool. If you will just believe, if you'll choose me. Why would God make a plea for something that it's already sealed and done? It doesn't make any difference. Now at this point, I hope you're very confused. I certainly can't choose the wine in front of you. If you get that. But listen, how does this work? Because election is either all or none. It isn't 50% election and 50% decision. It has to be 100% election if it's election. I mean, you can't have any less than that. So how does this work? The answer? I don't know. But turn to chapter 11, verse 33. As Paul comes to the conclusion of this confusing section of Scripture, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways are past finding out. Paul himself says, I can't figure it out. The depths and the riches of the wisdom and the understanding of it. He says his ways are past finding out and his judgments are unsearchable. You'll never reconcile some of these things with your your earthly intellect. You cannot in your three-dimensional, finite, puny mind reconcile how both of these things that seem to be exclusive of one another can both be true. And yet God declares in his word that they are and that you won't understand. Well, you, you ask as we really do close. Am I chosen? Am I called? Was my name, is my name, written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world? Is it there? Am I one that will be saved? Well, let me ask you. Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? That God sent His Son, who was born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life, and who died on a cross to pay the price for your sins and mine? And then he rose from the dead. Have you responded to the plea of the preacher? The one whom God sent and put you in the audience of his ear, or the ear of his audience, to say, hey, listen, it's for you. There's a decision for you to make that you need to come to Christ and make your peace with God through the blood of his son. Well, if you've trusted Christ for your salvation, if you've responded to his plea, then you are not blinded like Israel is in our text. You are saved. And Paul gives examples for every time he talks about those that were damned or unsaved so that we would understand who they are. He mentions Esau. Esau was a man of the earth. He lived for his flesh. He didn't care about spiritual things. And the Bible says that he was profane. That's you. Maybe you're not chosen. 
If that's the way you live, you don't care about God, you don't care about spiritual things, you don't care about what's going on in eternity, you only care about yourself here and now, and that's the only thing on your mind, well, then maybe you should wonder. Pharaoh, he was a man who persecuted God's people. Seven times the Bible says God gave him a chance. Seven opportunities God gave him to exercise his free will and make a decision. And yet seven times it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. After that, it says seven more times God came to him, but then God hardened his heart. Fourteen times Pharaoh hardened his heart. The first seven, he chose it himself. Then God said, okay, you've made your decision. And it says then that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Have you hardened your heart? Have you persecuted God's people? Refusing to obey, refusing to submit? Well, if you are like Pharaoh, then perhaps you're not called. In 11, chapter, or chapter 11, verse 4, he talks about the Baal worshippers. Those that don't serve God, that serve other gods. If that's you, and then, you know, I could go on. There's a lot more in this thing, but we're out of time. If those things describe you, and you have no interest in receiving God's gift of salvation through Christ, then maybe you're not chosen. But now let me say this, and we really are wrapping this up. I'm so sorry, we're running long, worth it. I know that if I said to you tonight, that tonight, ten of you, ten of you that are in this crowd here tonight are not going to make it home. You're going to die before you get there. There's something in us, something in me, if I was you sitting there, I would be like, oh, it's me. (laughs) I know it's going to be me. I just know it is going to be me. Because that's kind of the way we are. Now, if I also said right after that, but there are also 10 of you that tonight you are going to be enriched wealthily. You're going to be millionaires before the night is over. You would say, well, that's not me. (laughs) It's not going to be me. I'm not that lucky, you know. Because that's kind of the way we are. So when I say, hey, there's some that are called and there's some maybe that aren't called. Immediately in our minds we go, well, I'm not called. I'm not the one that's called, or I'm Esau, or I'm the Pharaoh, or I'm, you know, whatever the thing might be. But listen, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said these words. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He didn't say, let the elected come. He said, all you that are weary and heavy laden, come to me, I will give you rest. Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. Jesus told his people, he said, Go ye into all the world and preach. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. If you believe the words of this glorious gospel, the Bible says you will be saved. John chapter 6, verse 37 says, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. That if you come to Jesus Christ, there is no way that he will ever reject you or deny you. You've called upon the name of the Lord. John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, Jesus said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. That as the scripture has said, out of his belly will gush torrents of living water. Are you thirsty? Jesus will not deny you. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 says that the spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him that hears say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Do you desire the water of life that comes only from Christ? Do you desire that your sins be forgiven and your soul be saved? If you come to Christ, you will not be denied. 
Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says that he doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He doesn't want to see you separated from him. He doesn't want to see you accursed. He doesn't want to see you struggling in your life. He wants to see you saved. That's the desire of God's heart. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 1 and 2, says that the multitude of those that are around the throne in heaven, when it's all said and done, that they look upon Him who's on the throne, beautiful, seated there, and they declare these words. They say, true and righteous are your judgments. Nobody says that that election, sovereignty, free will thing wasn't right. little shady. little fuzzy the way you did that, God. They all say, true and righteous are your judgments. Perfect are your ways. If you've come to Christ, if you've chosen Jesus, and you've made the decision to say, I cannot save myself, I come to you to be the Savior of my soul, then that reveals and shows that you are chosen by God. That He has accepted you from the foundation of the world to the praise of His glory. Maybe you're here tonight and you have not yet come to Christ. You haven't yielded yourself to His righteousness. But you know in your heart that this is the time. That God has put you here tonight and He's gotten your attention. And you know that something's moving within your heart. Again, Romans chapter 8, or chapter 10, verses 8 through 13, the scripture that we read tonight. That the word is nigh thee, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you shall confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. And you know as you sit here tonight, you who have not yet yielded your life to Christ, you know something is missing in your life. You know that in your mind there's a void when you think about what will happen when you die. You're not sure. You're afraid. You don't know God personally. The security of having that foundation within your life is not there. And things are falling apart at the seams in your life. You know that something's not right. And inside you have a desire. You want things to make sense in your life. You want the stability of a relationship with God. You want to know that your sins are forgiven, that your guilt is gone. And you want to know what happens when you die. I'm inviting you tonight, as God stretches out His arms to you, His open plea for you to come. I'm inviting you to receive Jesus Christ. To receive His gift of life. The forgiveness of sins. And the guarantee of a future in heaven. If that's you, as Brad comes and begins to play, I'd invite you to just stand in the place where you're seated. If you want to say, Lord Jesus, I I need you in my life. I want to know your salvation. I want you to save my soul. And as Brad begins to play, You stand to your feet and then I'm going to lead you in a prayer as he pauses where you will have a chance to confess with your mouth. I'll lead you in a prayer and you can just confess with your mouth that you're making Jesus the Lord of your life. You can profess that you believe, make a profession of faith that you believe that he died for your sins and that he rose again from the dead. And the Bible says that if you do those things, that you will be saved. That you can stand upon the authority of God's word. That he has made this declaration. That with the heart, faith is professed. With the mouth, it's confessed that Jesus is the Lord of all. 
and that your soul will be saved. So Brad, he's going to play. The Christians, we're going to pray. And if that's you here tonight, you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd ask you right now as Brad starts, just stand to your feet. To say, Jesus, in your heart, I'm obedient to you. Not to embarrass you, but that you might know the peace of God within your life. And I tell you that something will happen in your heart immediately. That even as you stand to your feet, God bless you. Even as you come and make that profession that the weight of your sin will fall away, you'll feel the peace of God begin to fill your heart as Jesus himself moves in. Breath. Stand. You want to be saved.